It is such an honor and such a joy to be able to stand here in this pulpit again, and uh, I give all the, the praise to God for his great and marvelous goodness. I suppose everyone is aware of the horrific attacks that have taken place in Israel at the hands of Hamas, uh, the attack that uh, was launched last Saturday. Besides the normal trauma that goes with war, Hamas indiscriminately killed uh, over a thousand Israeli civilians, men, women, children of all ages. Uh, they took a large number of hostages back to the Gaza Strip. Our State Department uh, confirmed yesterday that there are, among the dead, 29 Americans with another 16 Americans unaccounted for. And, of course, the evidence shows that Iran helped plan and fund this attack. Uh, these events bring us face-to-face -face yet again with the stark reminder that mankind is depraved, and it reminds us of the desperate need that sinners have for the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in light of these events, I want to change today's Old and New Testament readings. I want to ask you first to go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 23 through 40. And then we're going to read from Romans 11. So let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting at the 23rd verse. Deuteronomy 4.23. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. That's the version I'm going to be preaching from going forward. So if you want to get it on your phone, uh, your electronic device, you can follow me word for word, or maybe you want to purchase a copy of the ESV. Deuteronomy chapter 4, I'm going to start at verse 23. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and made a Car and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger... I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation, all these things come upon you in the latter days. You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. 
For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Now to Romans chapter 11, our New Testament reading, beginning at verse 25. Romans 11.25, the Apostle Paul writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He tells the church, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. But God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you make plain in your word that you love your covenant people Israel, providing through Abraham's descendants the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And your word also makes plain that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Oh God, how we do want peace there instead of conflict, instead of violence. But we believe that the main thing we're praying for and praying for Jerusalem's peace is the return of Jesus, the Messiah, to earth. When he will rule the nations with a rod of iron and these terrorist attacks will be gone forever. Hasten the day, Heavenly Father. According to your great mercy, we ask you now, that you would frustrate the evil efforts of the attackers and their sponsors and put them down. Protect and comfort those who've been impacted by these attacks. We pray for the families of those killed, those injured, and those who have been taken hostage. We cannot imagine it. Deliver those who've been taken hostage, we ask. Protect the men and women of Israel's defense forces, some of whom are are our own brothers and sisters in Christ, guard over their loved ones in their absence and strengthen them for the difficult days that are ahead. Provide safety and blessing for the Messianic assemblies and the Christian ministry organizations in Israel. Give Israel's political and military leaders wisdom as they plan and lead the response to these horrific attacks. And Father, guard over the life of every American soldier who may also become involved in this conflict before it's over. We pray, God, that this region, which has known such terrible violence for so long, will soon know peace. Use this awful moment in Israel's history to awaken many to the truth of the gospel and bring many to faith in Jesus. Help help believing soldiers and believing hostages to share the life-transforming message of the gospel with those around them. And then finally, Father, we pray broadly for those Jews and Palestinians who've been impacted by these horrific events. Oh, God, we ask you to have mercy, and we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to say a special word of thanks to my son, Jacob, who came this morning to play the the guitar. Jacob, that sounded wonderful. That resonator guitar you're playing sounds really good. Yeah, it's the first time I've really gotten to hear it, and it, it had a really nice mix, Joseph. Y'all did a good job this morning. Thank you, brothers. 
Well, last Sunday was absolutely amazing. I, I, I haven't the words to express. Uh, there were so many uh, kindnesses that were shown us. The, the meal last Sunday was incredible. It was a spread like I don't know that I've ever seen here at the church. It was amazing. Y'all did such a marvelous job. I enjoyed reading the cards that you wrote and, and gave to us. That meant so much. There were some really precious things that were said there. And then I wanted to say a special thank you to the anonymous someone who wrote on a white envelope gas money and uh, included it in there. I appreciated uh, the gas money to, to Chattanooga and back. That was really kind, whoever, whoever gave it. Um, I also wanted to say a special word of appreciation to our senior members who battled so hard, some of them particularly, really battled physically just to get here last Sunday. And uh, Sister Betty is back again uh, today. You know, uh, yes. <laughs> Satan will throw up uh, all kinds of uh, obstacles and then turn minor things into hindrances, but he'll sure try to use physical limitations as well to keep us away. I'll never forget a man named Don. He was a black man uh, at the church that we were in at the time in Orlando, Florida. We were just members there, but I'll never forget Don because he had, I I don't know what exactly, it might have been cerebral palsy or something like that, but he used these crutches, and he had these huge, loud braces on his legs. And the church was a very large church. It had a, had a wide, a really wide aisle that ran down the middle. And I can see Don swinging those braces and uh, those uh, crutches, you know, swinging those crutches wide, his braces clanking, and down he would come the center of the aisle. He needed a wide aisle. But he, he did not let it stop him. And uh, I, I've, he had no idea. That's been 30 years ago. He had no idea the impact that he was making on me uh, with his faithfulness. So anyhow, just wanted to say that the, the Keen and the Bua families who, who drove up from Chattanooga last week and surprised us as well, we were floored by that. It was a marvelous Sunday, and I just want to thank all of you. I'll never forget the kindness that you were shown. Thank you. Well, now begins the nitty-gritty, down-in-the-dirt work of rebuilding. And we take it up in the humble recognition that there are simply times in the sovereignty and the wisdom of God when a church has to rebuild. We're in such a time. To which we say with Eli, the priest of God, At the tabernacle in Shiloh, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And to which we exclaim in worship, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I just want to assure you, brothers and sisters, of this one thing as we begin this work of rebuilding. We can do this. 
And we can do it because God can do it. You remember his word last week as we looked at Isaiah 43, 19? He said, behold, I am doing a new thing. Who's doing the new thing? God is doing the new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? The God of heaven is the one who is doing the new thing, which gels, by the way, with Revelation 21.5, doesn't it? I'm going to turn to Revelation 21.5. I'm right there at it. And I read these words. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The initiative and the power are always God's. As somebody said, God is always previous. We love Him because He first loved us. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing, wrath-pacifying sacrifice for our sins. Think about Israel coming out of Egypt. You remember the story in the Old Testament, of course. Did they follow the pillar of cloud or did they lead the pillar of cloud? Oh, they followed. Exodus 13, 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. You see, brothers and sisters, the initiative and the power are always God's. They belong to Him. Which means we can rebuild this church because God can. Now, in case there might be one, one among us who privately harbors some doubts. There's a question that begins Genesis 18:14, and I would like somebody to read big and loud that question that begins Genesis 18:14. And I'm going to need your help here real quickly or the service is going to extend by about 10 minutes. So I need you to read them when you hear them, okay? Genesis 18:14 has a question. What's the question? Read it one more time for us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Alright. No. The angel Gabriel tells Mary something in Luke 137. Somebody read Luke 137. What does the angel Gabriel tell her? Oh, for nothing will be impossible with God. Somebody else read us big and loud. Matthew 19.26. Matthew 19.26. Are you noticing a theme? Amen. And one more somebody. Read us big and loud. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. 
Amen. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or all that we can think. Right? So let's be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, church. Oh, I'm so excited. Now, I want to talk about the two primary resources that we need for rebuilding and then look at an illustrative text this morning in Matthew chapter 9. Then next week, it's back to verse-by-verse study in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to make our way through 1 Corinthians. We'll go verse by verse to hear the Word of God. And wow, I've had, I don't know why, but I've had 1 Corinthians on my mind for months. So we're going to go there, 1 Corinthians, starting next Sunday. I hope you will tell somebody and be prepared to dig in. For the work of rebuilding, what resources do we need? Number one, we need the Word of God. The Word of God. Because God's Word is a reviving Word, right? It reanimates, it refreshes, it brings the soul back to action. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. So you may know. Reviving the soul. God's Word is a reviving Word. God's Word is a resurrecting Word. In Luke chapter 7, oh, there's this poignant scene. I've read it so many times at funerals. I may even be reading it tomorrow. I'm not sure yet. Uh, when we do Sister Judy Humphrey's graveside service tomorrow, I'm just happened to think of that while you're turn to Luke uh, seven eleven, would you? Luke seven eleven. Uh, Judy, Sister Judy, would come here on Wednesdays. She uh, loved the Wednesday morning Bible studies that we had, and was so faithful to them. And um, Sister Donna would bring her in, and and it was tough for Judy to be able to get here. She loved going out and eating with uh, everybody after we were done. Just a precious uh, woman in Christ, and her, we'll be having her graveside service tomorrow at 2. So I hope you will remember um, that family. Oh, but the Word here is a resurrecting Word. It brings to life again what was dead. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer. The beer was an open coffin. It's like a board. And they would place the body on the board to carry the body. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. That's the word. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. That beautiful. The word of God is a reviving word. It's a resurrecting word. It's a restoring word. 
stay in Luke and go over to chapter 22, verse 31. It's a restoring word. It brings us back to use when we've fallen. Isn't that wonderful? We, we make mistakes. We do dumb things. We deliberately sin against God. And what does the Word of God do? It brings us back. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, because you're going to turn away, but when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Let me tell you, there should be no greater strengthening of the brothers than one who has turned away And the Lord has brought him back. That man ought to be humble. He ought to have a heart for people who are also on a wrong path. Beautiful, beautiful passage, isn't it? The Word of God restores, it resurrects, it revives, and it returns. After it precision strikes its target. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The Presbyterian theologian W.G.T. Shedd tells a story about a Christian missionary who went to a young man and he was earnest in talking to this young man about the condition of his soul. And after he had sincerely and earnestly but with love had talked to this young man about his need of Christ, he handed him a gospel tract, a booklet. And when the missionary had gone, you know what the young man did with the tract? He took it and he threw it in the fire. And as the pages of that tract were curling up in the heat and beginning to turn to ashes, his eye caught these words in that tract. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. And the way Shed put it, as the words turn to ashes in the fire, they turn to fire in the young man's mind. And that young man could not shake those words. And he eventually testified that he had called on Christ himself and become his follower. You can run from God, but you can't hide. The Lord declares in Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Answer, oh yes. That's God's word. You see why we must have the word of God for the work of rebuilding? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, there is nothing that compares to the Word of God. We've got to have it to rebuild right. And you know what? We've got it. We've got it. Now listen, I'm going to ask you to make me a promise. Will you do this for me? Going forward, I want you to make me a promise. Make me the promise that you will not come here on Sunday mornings and look at me as though what I'm saying to you is written on my goatee. 
Because it's not written here. It's written here. And your eyes need to be here, not here. So what I'm trying to say is I want you to bring a Bible. Okay? Bring your Bible. Don't, don't be embarrassed to carry a Bible. Bring your Bible. Open it up. Let your eyes see the text for yourself. Look at your Word. We need the resource, first of all, for rebuilding the Word of God. That's what we need, the Word of God. Second, we need prayer. You know why churches pray so little, so often? It's because they regard prayer as supplemental rather than fundamental. It's a nice thing to have. You can sprinkle it, like sprinkles on a donut, I guess, you know. You can sprinkle it, makes it a little better. But it's not something that is a game changer. That is symptomatic of the Laodicean error. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, that the Lord Jesus in his exaltation rebukes. Do you remember he says to the, to the Laodicean church, for you say, here's your estimate of you. You say, I have prospered. I am rich. I need nothing. Not realizing, now here's his, his evaluation, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now how can you be in that condition and not realize it? You see, you can be in that condition when you're prayerless and you don't think you need God. You don't think you need His his supernatural help. Churches that little pray fail to grasp who's out there and what they're up against. They don't grasp, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that in the case of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded their eyes so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. And see, we're going out to try to tell them about Jesus. And we're not praying. Do we not realize that the God of this world has blinded their eyes? What power do we have apart from what God can do? He's the only one. We've got to pray. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're up against. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. How can we not pray? How can we not be praying Christians in a praying church? Churches that little pray, they're astonishing. They seem indifferent to the warning of the Apostle Peter. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That one verse, brothers and sisters, ought to drive every one of us to prayer. I'm going to shoot this real straight. Our rebuild won't stand a chance if we won't pray. We've got to come out. When it's a designated prayer time, we've got to come out. And we've got to pray together. 
We've got to show the Lord that we're sincere. Well, He knows my heart. Yes, He knows your heart. But He calls you to pray. And nothing helps prayer like being able to come together with a believing brother and a believing sister and getting shoulder to shoulder and praying with my brother and her praying with her sister. That's what we need. We have got to show the Lord that we're desperate for Him because we're desperate for Him. We need an almighty move of the Spirit of God in this church. I'm thinking about Acts chapter 4, verse 23. If you want to turn there quickly, we're going to move quickly. Acts 4, 23. I want you to notice in their praying what they appeal to. They pray. Yes, they pray and they appeal. Listen to this. Acts 4, 23. They've been threatened. Peter and John threatened. They were released. They went to their friends. And they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Now this is prayer. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the word of God they're quoting. See, word of God, prayer. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Notice they don't pray for safety. They pray For boldness. Interesting, isn't it? While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There it is. I'm telling you, Mill Springs, if God stirs us up to pray then you're going to know that he's about to do something to the fame of his name. Because when he starts stirring up prayer in a church, he's moving. We need that. So for the work of rebuilding, we need these two resources, the Word of God and prayer, both of which we have. We're outfitted. We're outfitted. We have what we need. For the work of rebuilding. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, in the 40 minutes that we've got left, I just wanted to see if you're still listening. Okay. I want to unfold this word from Matthew chapter 9. And then we're going to pray. And I'm going to ask when, when we finish this brief exposition, I'm going to ask if those of you who will be willing to come down here and we're going to get down here huddle up, and we're going to pray. Matthew 9.35. The Gospel of Matthew is tremendous. In fact, it may be one of the next books that we work our way through. It contains, among other things, the narratives of Jesus' infancy, the Sermon on the Mount, 
numerous parables of our Lord's that are not found in other books of uh, other Gospels, the three Gospels, all along with uh, a strong Jewish tinge to this Gospel that the others lack. Matthew may have had the Jewish and Gentile Christian community in Syria and Antioch in mind when he wrote this Gospel. We don't know that for sure. What we do know for sure is that the Gospel of Matthew shows us Jesus as the Jewish nation's long-awaited Messiah who stresses two resources, the Word of God and prayer. This text before us summarizes the heart of his ministry in Galilee, and it begins what's known as Jesus' third Galilean circuit, likely the last as well. Listen to it, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. That would be the cities and villages of Galilee. Many poor, uh, many obscure locales. He went to flyover country, we'd say. And he was teaching in their synagogues, these Jewish gathering places for worship and study. And note... He's giving instruction in the Word of God. Do you see it? It's there. And proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, His words and His works, declaring His Messiahship. And He was healing every disease and every affliction. You see how He stands apart from the charlatans today? No case was too difficult. No case too advanced. He was doing good to souls. He was doing good to bodies in whatever condition he found them. And these miracles were confirming who he was. They were confirming what he was doing and teaching. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Literally, they were mangled and cast down. You could even translate that first verb, uh, as uh, flayed, skinned. And that was because of the wretchedness of being in the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. He saw them like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep, as one said, who are limping, matted, and beat up from one desperation to another. Barnes comments beautifully, Jesus compares the crowds to sheep wandering without a shepherd. Judea was a land of flocks and herds. The faithful shepherd by day and by night was with his flock. He defended it. He made it to lie down in green pastures. He led it beside still waters. Without his care, the sheep would stray away. They were in danger of wild beasts. They panted in the summer sun and didn't know where the cooling shade and stream were to be found. So it is said, said the Savior, with this people. It's with this people that way. No wonder the compassionate Redeemer was moved with pity. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples... His students, that's what a disciple is, a student, in a learning relationship with Christ. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Speaking of the extensive needs of Israel's distressed and downcast people. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, do what? Verse 38. Therefore, pray. Pray. There it is. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to the sovereign God, to send out laborers, literally to thrust out workers, missionaries, evangelists, teachers, disciples, to send out laborers into his harvest to bring people in discipled faith in Christ. Isn't it interesting that the very thing that the world mocks as useless, prayer, is the very thing Jesus calls for first as imperative. Pray, he says, for laborers, for workers. It's not a very glamorous word, is it? He doesn't say pray for experts, pray for professionals, pray for highly skilled specialists. It says pray for workers, laborers, ordinary people. And notice that the work to be done in the field is not the work of sowing. What is it? Harvest. It's the, it's the work of reaping. The harvest is there. Go get it. That's what he's saying. Last year, some of you may recall that we'd begun singing an old hymn on, on Wednesday nights and on Sunday, uh, Wednesdays and Sundays, Sunday nights, called Little as Much When God is in It. You know that one? In the harvest field now ripened, there's a work for all to do. Hark, the master's voice is calling to the harvest, calling you little as much. When God is in it. Brothers and sisters, in the work of rebuilding this church, we're going to need to do more than sing about the harvest. We got to go get it. We're going to need to pray for men and women and young people and children. Oh, these children. They're some of the best representatives of, of the faith that we have. They know how to talk to others, and they'll do it. We need to pray for us to get a real burden for the harvest and then go out and start bringing it in. Because if you look at the next chapter, we won't take time to read the verses, but you know what Jesus does? He calls 12 disciples and he sends them out. See verse 5? These 12 Jesus sent out. He says, pray, go. We've always got to pray, church, but there comes a time when prayer's got to be married to effort. And that's it. The Word of God and prayer, the two resources that we need for rebuilding right for the harvest. I dare not close without one final thought. Maybe it's not just a, a church that needs rebuilding. Maybe it's your life that needs rebuilding. Well, let me tell you what. Jesus is an expert with ruins. He knows how to take a life of ruins and rebuild it. You need to call on him. 
You need to ask His mercy. And oh, He'll be merciful to you. And He will help you. Come along with us. If you need some rebuilding, we do too. Come with us. Lend a hand. To God be the glory.